Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This episode is titled, The Mysterious Origin of the Ouija Board, and this is Houdini Part 2. In Part 1, we gave the facts and some of the stories that surround the life of Harry Houdini, which led us to his personal war to expose all mediums as frauds, a war which continued long after his death. There is no doubt that Houdini left behind a huge legacy. He brought magic out of the carnival and vaulted it into the world of legitimate showmanship, and one of the ways he did this was to publicly pursue the frauds in his business. By the 1920s, the use of mediums, or people who said they could contact a deceased person and relay messages from that person to you, as you sat at a round table in a candlelit room, was at a record high. The belief that spirits exist apart from matter was, and is, called spiritualism, and to many it had become not only an interest, but a religion. Spiritualists see the afterlife, or the spirit world, not as a static place, but as one in which spirits continue to evolve. These two beliefs, that contact with spirits is possible, and that spirits are more advanced than humans, lead spiritualists to a third belief, that spirits are capable of providing useful knowledge about moral and ethical issues, as well as about the nature of God. Some spiritualists will speak of a concept which they refer to as spirit guides, and if you ever come across the word spiritism, that's a branch of spiritualism developed by Alan Kardec and today practiced mostly in continental Europe and Latin America, especially in Brazil, and that part of the belief emphasizes reincarnation. Spiritualism developed and reached its peak growth in membership from the 1840s to the 1920s, especially in English-speaking countries. By 1897, spiritualism was said to have more than 8 million followers in the United States and Europe, mostly drawn from the middle and upper classes. Spiritualism flourished for half a century without canonical texts or formal organization, attaining cohesion through periodicals, tours by trance lecturers, camp meetings, and the missionary activities of accomplished mediums. Many prominent spiritualists were women, and, like most spiritualists, supported causes such as the abolition of slavery and women's suffrage. By the late 1880s, the credibility of the informal movement had weakened due to accusations of fraud perpetrated by mediums, and formal spiritualist organizations began to appear. Spiritualism is currently practiced primarily through various denominational spiritualist churches in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Spiritualists believe in the possibility of communication with the spirits of dead people, whom they regard as discarnate humans. They believe that spirit mediums are gifted to carry on such communication, but that anyone may become a medium through study and practice. They believe that spirits are capable of growth and perfection, progressing through higher spheres or planes, and that the afterlife is not a static state, but one in which spirits evolve. As far as I know, famous psychic Edgar Cayce was not a spiritualist, but his readings that discuss an evolving of the spirit in the afterlife are very similar. We have three interviews with Cayce experts in our archives. All you need to do is search Edgar Cayce, Cayce spelled C-A-Y-C-E. In the U.S., spiritualism first appeared in the 1840s in what they call the burned-over district of upstate New York. I had never heard of that before, and I found it fascinating. The burned-over district refers to the western and central regions of New York State in the early 19th century, where religious revivals and the formation of new religious movements of the Second Great Awakening took place, to such a great extent that spiritual fervor seemed to set the area on fire. I had never heard of the expression, the burned-over district, 
but upon reading it, it looks like a woke movement torn between belief in religion and belief that receives its direction from the spirit world. While some call it a religious revival, it looks more like a loss of faith. Spiritualists were turning to self-proclaimed mediums, hypnosis, and spirit boards, which we now call Ouija boards, for advice on how to believe and who or what to follow. And please, you spiritualists out there, don't send a review. Send me an email at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. All kinds of religions were either born in or emerged fighting for souls in that region, which included Palmyra, Rochester, Syracuse, Troy, Buffalo, and hundreds of small communities that make up western New York State, like Little Seneca Falls, which gave us the feminist movement and women's suffrage. There were utopian socialists in scanty Adelies. There was the Amana German movement, which later gave us Amana refrigerators. Joseph Smith started Mormonism in that area. The Seventh-day Adventists came from there, and Millerites, who believed in the Second Coming, were there, along with Jehovah's Witnesses, Quakers, and the Shakers in Niskayuna and Colony were there, and right in the middle of all those were the Protestants duking it out for souls. Like Nashville's to country music people, Western New York was to holy and non-holy rollers of all types. And flourishing in the middle of all this was the Fox Sisters, who bring us back to the subject of mediums and Ouija boards, because this little family of sisters was very inventive when it came to soul-searching. The Fox Sisters of Hydesville, New York, namely Leah, Maggie, and Kate, conducted the first table-wrapping seances in that area around 1848, leading to the American movement of spiritualism. And by the way, if you need an epicenter for spiritualism, it was centered in the retreat at Lily Dale and in the Plymouth Spiritualist Church in Rochester, New York. And they taught communion with the dead. So there you have it. A church teaching people how to talk to the dead. Now I begin to understand why the Protestant churches focus on teaching about the living God. But back to the Fox sisters. It all started with Leah, who was 20 years older than her other sisters, when she began performing seances in their house. The younger sisters found a way to hide behind the parlor walls and tap in answer to questions that Leah was asking, or being asked. How they managed to keep from laughing themselves silly is questionable, but for a while, Leah, who wasn't in on the prank, had quite a successful thing going. But somehow she caught her sisters in the act, after which she taught them new tricks, and they made some real money pretending to help grieving widows communicate with their lost loved ones. And that lasted until 1888, when Margareta was busted, and she spilled the beans, and their reputation was ruined. So was their income, and pretty much their life. Leah died November 1, 1890, at age 77, and Margareta and Kate both died in abject poverty between July of 1892 and March of 1893. This would be a happy pair to talk to on your Ouija board if you're searching for lost souls. Spiritualists often said March 31, 1848 as the beginning of their movement, and that was the date that Kate and Margareta Fox of Hydesville, New York, reported that they had made contact with a spirit that was later claimed to be the spirit of a murdered peddler whose body was found in the house, though no record of such a person was ever found. The spirit was said to have communicated through rapping noises, audible to onlookers. The evidence of the senses appealed to practically-minded Americans, and the Fox sisters became a sensation. As the first celebrity mediums, the Fox sisters quickly became famous for their public seances in New York. But you heard what happened in 1888, when one of them admitted that this contact with the spirit was all a hoax. Though shortly afterward, they must have lawyered up 
because they recanted that admission, but it was all over for them. In the years following the sensation that greeted the Fox sisters, demonstrations of mediumship, basically seances and automatic writing, proved to be a profitable venture and soon became popular forms of entertainment and spiritual catharsis. The Fox sisters were to earn a living this way and others would follow their lead, even after they'd been exposed as frauds. Showmanship became an increasingly important part of spiritualism and the visible, audible, and tangible evidence of spirits escalated as mediums competed for paying audiences. As independent investigating commissions repeatedly established, most notably the 1887 report of the Cybert Commission, fraud was widespread, and some of these cases were prosecuted in the courts. The Cybert Commission was a group of men from the University of Pennsylvania faculty who mostly were proponents of spiritualism. They originally set out to prove that there were at least some honest mediums out there, but after a year of investigating and finding only fraud, they published a report saying that they had found no legitimate mediums. That caused a huge uproar in the spiritualist community, and the group of men soon disbanded. And I'll repeat again, please, spiritualists, don't send a review. Just send me an email. (laughs) And don't try and contact me by Ouija board. Despite the fact that no one could prove that spirits could communicate, the appeal of spiritualism was strong. Prominent in the ranks of its adherents were those grieving the deaths of a loved one. Many families during the time of the American Civil War had seen their men go off and never return, and images of the battlefield produced through the new medium of photography demonstrated that their loved ones had not only died in overwhelmingly huge numbers, but horribly as well. One well-known case is that of Mary Todd Lincoln, who, grieving the loss of her son, organized seances in the White House, which were attended by her husband, President Abraham Lincoln. As we said earlier, the surge of spiritualism during this time, and later during World War I, was a direct response to those massive battlefield casualties. A number of scientists and elites who investigated the phenomenon also became converts. They included chemist and physicist William Crookes and physicist Sir Oliver Lodge. Nobel laureate Pierre Curie was impressed by the mediumistic performances of Eusapia Palladino and advocated their scientific study. But you might recall from Part 1 Houdini exposing Palladino as a fraud. Other prominent adherents included journalist and pacifist William T. Steed, and as you already know, physician and author Arthur Conan Doyle, who lost his son Kingsley in World War I, and who was a member of the Ghost Club in London in 1862. And the focus of the Ghost Club was the scientific study of alleged paranormal activities in order to prove or refute the existence of paranormal phenomena. Famous members of that club, of the Ghost Club, included Charles Dickens, Sir William Crookes, Sir William F. Barrett, and Harry Price. The celebrated New York City physician John Franklin Gray was a prominent spiritualist, Thomas Edison wanted to develop a spirit phone, an ethereal device that would summon to the living the voices of the dead and record them for posterity. So the craze had its followers. Which brings us to the story of the Ouija board. Although spiritualism had faded, the Ouija board is still going strong today. By the late 1960s, just about everyone had a Ouija board game stuck in the toy closet somewhere between Clue and Monopoly. In fact, sales on Ouija boards beat those of Monopoly in 1967, despite efforts by organized religion to discourage the use of them. When you commune with spirits, they were saying, you don't know what side you're calling to, and that has more than a grain of truth, provided you believe there's a path at all. Maybe you've sat down for a serious seance, which, by the way, I'm not recommending. 
According to Mitch Horowitz, author of Occult America, the Ouija board dates back to the late 19th century, and probably beyond that, but that information is sketchy. What we do have is a March 18, 1886 article appearing in a Sunday supplement of the New York Daily Tribune, entitled, A Mysterious Talking Board and Table, Over Which Northern Ohio Was Agitated. The article includes an illustration and description of what we know today as the Ouija board, including upper corners with yes and no, two rows of letters at the top, and a row of numbers near the bottom, beneath which you see goodbye written at the bottom center. To navigate the board, a heart-shaped or tear-shaped planchette with a see-through hole in it is lightly guided by the fingertips of the people using it. How it is guided, or what guides it, depends upon your point of view. And we'll get into that in a few minutes. The graphics are definitely late 1800s, which tends to make it look mysterious, although on modern versions, the plastic planchette tends to cheapen the illusion. I'm sure all of you know this, but I'll add anyway that the goal here is to connect with the spirit entity while sitting with friends in a candlelit space with no distractions, and to ask this entity questions. Some of you are saying to yourselves one of these things. A. I don't want any part of that mumbo-jumbo foolishness. B. I tried that once and nothing happened. C. I have spoken to my lost loved ones. Or D. I tried that once and although it only produced garble, the temperature definitely dropped and the hair was standing up on the back of my neck. I decided I didn't want any part of that game in the future. That last one is my story and I promised to tell it, so here goes. There isn't a lot of drama here, but I'm telling the unvarnished truth. And here it is. When I was a freshman in college in northeast Pennsylvania, just south and east of that crazy region of New York we just discussed, I was curious about Ouija boards, mediums, and the realms of parapsychology. During that winter, on a Monday morning, the campus witnessed an ambulance and a police car arriving at one of the old three-story homes on campus that served as lodging for some of our professors. The college had been founded back around 1850, and these houses were there when it was founded. Coal was delivered by a chute into the cellar for the furnace, and this was coal country north of Scranton. As word got around quickly up there, we soon found out that one of the professors living upstairs in that old place had died trying to pull off an escape trick used by the likes of Houdini. Apparently that was his hobby. There was no evidence of foul play. He just choked in his chains. That macabre death on campus left many of us shocked, and even fewer of us with a strange feeling to investigate. But I was one of those few. Four of us snuck up to the old house a few nights later carrying a flashlight, a couple of candles, and a Ouija board. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. The cellar was accessible by two storm cellar doors. You know, the old-fashioned hurricane doors that opened to stone steps leading down to the cellar. It was cold and clammy already, but considering our mission, I would say that to the clamminess was added a sense of fear. It was solemn. No one was joking. We had all sworn that we would not attempt to control the heart-shaped finder, and I know I didn't. I just barely touched it. One of the group started asking questions, to which the finder was supposed to travel to the yes or no or letters, hopefully to spell out an answer. We asked if there was a spirit present. Nothing happened. Nothing moved. We asked again. This time it did move. It moved to a series of letters. But the letters didn't spell anything but garble. And with each following question, it moved with a purpose, but only to give us garbled letters and numbers. I was trying to determine which of my partners was moving it, but I honestly don't believe any of them were, 
"'and afterwards they confirmed that. "'The heart moved purposefully "'as if it were being directed by an outside force. "'We asked another question with no hands on it, "'hoping it would move, but it didn't. "'It was already cold down there, "'but there was something else, "'probably just fear of the unknown and nothing more. "'We did hear, and you're going to think this is made up, "'but we heard what sounded like something heavy "'being dragged across the floor above us for a few seconds.' Maybe someone was playing a prank on us, although I don't think that a recent unexpected death would turn out pranksters in large numbers. We probably stayed there 15 minutes, but it seemed like an hour. We got no results, other than the distinct feeling that someone, something, was trying to make contact. That left me later with the impression that I didn't want to find out who or what it was. In the years after, I've avoided that game and provided my opinion that you really don't know who or what, if anything, you're calling up. I heard that some churches have banned it, and that's probably a good recommendation, as no one is seeking a closer relationship with God using a Ouija board to get there. If you think of the Ouija board as an outgrowth of automatic writing, which it really is, then you can start to see how it goes back sometime in history. One of the first mentions of the automatic writing method used in the Ouija board is found in China around 1100 AD in historical documents of the Song Dynasty. The method was known as Fuji Planchette Writing. The use of Planchette Writing as a means of necromancy and communion with the spirit world continued and was a central practice of the Huanzen school until it was forbidden by the Qing dynasty. According to one author, similar methods of mediumistic spirit writing have been practiced in ancient India, Greece, Rome, and medieval Europe. And you can peel this back another layer to necromancy as practiced in the early civilizations in Egypt and Greece. Necromancy, the practice of contacting the dead to gain some kind of insight into the future. And always the path here is never toward good, always toward evil. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. The Ouija itself was created and named in Baltimore, Maryland in 1890. Businessman Elijah Bond had the idea to patent a planchette sold with a board on which the alphabet was printed, much like the previously existing talking boards. Bond filed on May 28, 1890 for patent protection and is credited with the invention of the Ouija board, at least as we know it today. The issue date on the patent was February 10, 1891. The name Ouija is usually credited to his sister-in-law, Helen Peters, who was a self-proclaimed medium. She and Elijah were using the board one night at the Langham House, a boarding house which was located at 529 North Charles Street in Baltimore, and decided to ask it what they should call it. It spelled out Ouija, O-U-I-J-A. She asked the board what that meant. The board spelled out good luck, but as it turned out, not for everybody involved. For you history trivia nuts, a plaque commemorating the event that inspired the Ouija was placed just inside the front door of a 7-Eleven which stands on the property where the Langham House used to stand at 529 North Charles Street. And you need to know, you can't have your first seance until you've touched the plaque. And while you're at it, visit Poe's grave in Baltimore to top off your night. You might get some answers there. An employee of Elijah Bond named William Fold took over the talking board production and marketing. He called it the Magic Game, and said it was remarkable, interesting, and mystifying. Great mirth-making game for parties. Apparently answers questions concerning the past, present, and future. Another advertisement in a New York newspaper declared it to be interesting and mysterious, and testified 
as proven at patent office before it was allowed. Price, $1.50. The as proven at patent office. The U.S. Patent Office decided to ask the creators, Elijah and Helen, if it really worked. So Elijah arranged an appointment at the U.S. Patent Office in nearby Washington, D.C., and brought Helen, introducing her as a strong medium, which in 1891 meant she was carrying some powerful juju. And they gave the board a whirl in the presence of the chief patent officer, who, as the story goes, asked the board to spell out his name correctly. Neither Elijah nor Helen knew his full name, according to the story. They sat around a table, Peters acted as medium, and the board spelled out the patent officer's name, which, according to one version, was Charles Elliot Mitchell. According to legend, he turned white face and started shaking, and if the story's true, he became an instant believer. He got out the old rubber stamp and bada-bing, bada-boom, the patent number 446054 was issued. Hindsight tells us that Elijah Bond was a patent attorney and may have known the man's name, but that's only an educated guess. Just saying. In 1901, Fold started production of his own boards under the name Ouija. Charles Kennard, founder of Kennard Novelty Company, which manufactured Fold's talking boards, claimed he learned the name Ouija from using the board and that it was an ancient Egyptian word meaning good luck. When Fold took over production of the boards, he popularized the more widely accepted etymology that the name came from a combination of the French and German words for yes. But Helen and Elijah knew better. All these new guys were trying to take credit. By 1892, the Kennard Novelty Company went from one factory in Baltimore to two in Baltimore, two in New York, two in Chicago, and one factory in London. And by 1893, Kennard and Elijah Bond were out, and the company soon went to the original investors. By 1920, the board had become so accepted in American society that it was featured in a Norman Rockwell painting which appeared on the front of the Saturday Evening Post showing a man and a woman with the Ouija board on their knees communing with the beyond. One of the original creators, and the lady who gave the Ouija board its name, Helen Peters, apparently had some productive talks with the board. According to her grandson, when some Civil War family heirlooms went missing from her house, she asked the Ouija oracle who took them and the board told her it was a member of her family. Well, half the family did not believe that, including Helen. The other half did. That created a conflict that was never resolved. But it was too much for her. She sold all her stock in the company, and until her dying day, she swore she would never use it again because it lied to her, and they never did find out who filched the Civil War memorabilia. Then, supermarketer William Fold, who had taken credit for everything from the idea to the name, cut his brother out of the business, and those two would never speak to each other again. That was in 1919, when the war to end all wars had ended, and the use of the Ouija board was in high demand. By 1927, the New York Times reported that Fold had personally netted one million from sales of the board. As previously mentioned, he had opened new factories, including a three-story building in Baltimore, and the last thing it needed upon completion was a flagpole. Fold, with a worker, went up to the roof to install it, According to the workman there, Fold was standing near the edge of the roof, grasping an iron support of the pole to steady himself, when the support suddenly pulled away, and Fold toppled over backward. He initially grabbed the sill of an open window, but that suddenly closed, sending him crashing to the sidewalk below. He was alive when they finally caught up to him and loaded him in the ambulance, but a broken rib pierced his heart when the ambulance went over a bump, killing him instantly. So if you decide to pull the game out of the closet... 
"'and you see that heart-shaped planchette. "'Just think of William Fold. "'Better yet, maybe you can reach him. "'Personally, I'd like to know "'who took the Civil War memorabilia. "'So email me if you get an answer "'at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. "'Thanks.' "'The family continued to run the business "'until 1966 when they sold it to Parker Brothers, "'which was later brought by Hasbro. "'Their website warns, "'Handle the Ouija board with respect.' and it won't disappoint you. The Ouija phenomenon is considered by the scientific community to be the result of the idiomotor response. They say it all comes from the subconscious. The unconscious muscle movements responsible for the planchette display a class of phenomena due to what psychologists call a disassociative state. A disassociative state is one in which consciousness is somehow divided or cut off from some aspects of the individual's normal cognitive motor or sensory functions. That's all bullwacky. Either it's coming from somewhere on the other side, or you're imagining it. Two choices. On another note, I had no idea there were Catholic bishops in Micronesia. But they are, or were there, and they called for the boards to be banned, and warned congregations that they were talking to demons when using Ouija boards. In a pastoral letter, the Dutch Reformed Churches encouraged its communicants to avoid Ouija boards, as it is a practice related to the occult. I didn't know that the Dutch Reformed churches were even still around in the 1920s. My Hagedorn ancestors in upstate New York were Dutch Reformed church members back in the 18th century, and Lord knows they weren't worried about any talking boards. I doubt if they had any time for Ouija boards as they were too busy trying to build farms, raise little Dutch people, and keep their scalps around Albany back then. As a post-note, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod also forbids its faithful from using Ouija boards as it teaches that such would be a violation of the Ten Commandments. In 2001, Ouija boards were burned in Alamogordo, New Mexico by fundamentalist groups alongside Harry Potter books, burned as symbols of witchcraft. In my opinion, and you can take it or leave it, the Harry Potter books are great and serve as an entry level for a lot of kids who will become really interested in reading as a result of those books. Religious criticism has also expressed beliefs that the Ouija board reveals information which should only be in God's hands, and thus it is a tool of Satan. A spokesperson for Human Life International described the boards as a portal to talk to spirits and called for Hasbro to be prohibited from marketing them. And you can guess what Hasbro said. These religious objections to the use of the Ouija board have in turn given rise to an increased use of the evil Ouija boards amongst teens. Cautionary tales that the board opens a door to evil spirits turns the game to a fun subject of supernatural dare. I will give you kids some advice on Ouija boards. I say put wheels on them and commune with the streets, and you'll be a lot safer. Ouija boards, believe it or not, have been the source of inspiration for literary works, used as guidance in writing or as a form of channeling. As a result of Ouija boards becoming popular in the early 20th century, by the 1920s, Many psychic books were written of varying quality that were said to be initiated by Ouija board use. Some examples, Emily Grant Hutchings claimed that her novel, Jap Heron, a novel written from the Ouija board in 1917, was dictated by Mark Twain's spirit through the use of a Ouija board after his death. Pearl Lenore Curran alleged that for over 20 years she was in contact with a spirit named Patience Worth, and that relationship produced several novels and works of poetry and prose, which Pearl Curran claimed were delivered to her through channeling Worth's spirit during sessions with a Ouija board. 
much of William Butler Yeats' later poetry was inspired, among other facets of occultism, by the Ouija board. Yeats himself did not use it, but his wife did. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, used a Ouija board and conducted seances in attempts to contact the dead. Early press releases stated that Vincent Fernier's stage and band name, Alice Cooper, was agreed upon after a session with a Ouija board, during which it was revealed that Fernier was the reincarnation of a 17th century witch, in his case it would have been Warlock. After Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashed into the Florida Everglades in 1972, John G. Fuller wrote a book about it called The Ghosts of Flight 401. Employees of Eastern Airlines reported seeing the ghosts of pilot and co-pilot Bob Loft and Don Repo around the company, and the ghosts of the ten deceased flight attendants kept showing up on another plane. The theory was that parts from Flight 401 were salvaged and used in the only other Lockheed L-1011 that the company owned. Anyway, Fuller used the Ouija board and a medium to contact the spirits to write the book. Even Pulitzer Prize winners have consulted the Ouija. Poet James Merrill extensively used the board to write his work, including 1982's The Changing Light at Sandover. Ouija boards have also figured prominently in horror tales in various media as devices enabling malevolent spirits to spook their users. Most often they make brief appearances, relying heavily on the atmosphere of mystery the board already holds in the mind of the viewer, in order to add credence to the paranormal presence in the story being told. Some of you folks might recall that a Ouija board was an early part of the plot of the 1973 horror film The Exorcist. Using a Ouija board, the young girl Reagan makes what first appears to be harmless contact with an entity named Captain Howdy, and she later becomes possessed by a demon. And with that last note, we'll leave you to your own devices. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We love good reviews, and we have a few for you here today. This one, five stars, one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to a variety of podcasts, and the 1001 Family of Podcasts rank is my most listened to. It all started here with 1001 Heroes. Many of the stories gained my interest by title alone, and many times the stories are ones I want to get to the bottom of, even if I didn't know about it before listening. John is very easy to listen to, and the podcast is always informative. Great for medium to long car rides. Down from American R3B31, Apple Podcast. U.S. This one is titled Passionate, and this refers to our narrated podcast. This is what I consider a real, pure, and passionate podcast done by an individual who loves to read. He has great taste in his selection of authors. He reminds me of Peter Falk reading to his grandson in the movie Princess Bride. Down from Scott VOC, Apple Podcast, U.S. Ed Excellent, five stars. I've been listening to all of the 1001 podcasts for close to a year. They've become my go-to anytime I can sneak away. I'm partial to the Heroes series, have broadened my knowledge immensely. Mr. Hagedorn does such a great job in sharing his research on a variety of subjects. You'll come to look forward to Sunday nights, the sound of his voice, and new adventures. Thank you for your hard work. Down from Woodguy77, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, thank you, five stars. Wow, I didn't know how destructive those earthquakes were. Great show. Tim Tipton, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars, fantastic, fantastic. Imagine for a moment that your grandpa was awesome and he has great stories to tell you around the campfire. 1,001 stories to be exact. Seals with Wings, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very much for sending these reviews. It's appreciated and it helps new listeners find our show. Reviews help and so does sharing our show with others. That's a big one. That's how a lot of people find us too. 
Thank you so much, everyone, for being great fans and supporters of the 1001 shows. I thought I'd mention, too, that we're within just a couple weeks of reaching 1001 episodes for our network entire, which we started a little over five years ago. It's been a fantastic journey, and all of you are the ones that made it possible. So I want to thank you for being there, and thank you for all you've done to keep us going and to keep me going. (laughs) Thanks for your support. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.